All right. Filled with the Spirit, part two today. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Find that in your Bibles. In just a moment, we'll stand and I'll read God's Word. Verses 5 through 13, we're going to look at today. Last time, we caught a glimpse of the birth of the church and the baptism of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. God's actions in the Spirit's coming, and it was epic, miraculous, universe altering. The church was born because the Spirit came. And what would now happen is that now the Spirit of God would indwell all believers permanently for salvation and fill them with ongoing power to serve His purposes. What was going on is that God was initiating life change for the nations, for all who would believe. Well, today we're going to zero in on verses 5 through 13, people's reaction to God's actions in sending the Spirit. So please stand with me to read God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, like I did last week. This is the Word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you, by your spirit, would have your way with us today. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray, Lord, that that your purpose for us being here today would not be hindered in any way, but that we we would seek your will in our hearts, in our homes, and in your church, and out into the world. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So I want you to get a handle on on the big picture of the book of Acts 
as well as the immediate context, and I'm going to be doing this probably every week, preaching through Acts, is always reminding us of where we've been and, and where we're going. With, with reference to the big picture in the book of Acts, it's really the story of Christ's work continuing. It's his work through his witnesses for his purposes, to do his sovereign will. And we see five main themes running through the book of Acts. We see these themes running through the entire 28 chapters. First, the risen and returning Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Holy Spirit. Third, the all-sufficient Word of God. Fourth, God's chosen witnesses. And five, God's sovereign purposes. All of these are the major themes that run through the book and are prominent. I want to remind you about the nature of the book of Acts. It is foundational and it is transitional history. It's the bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles, the transition between the Old Covenant and the New. It is narrative history of the first 30 years of the church. It is primarily descriptive in its nature rather than prescriptive, describing what God did rather than here's how it exactly should look in your life. Chapter 1 covers the time between the ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. We saw the apostles actively waiting in the upper room. And what were they doing? They were obeying. They stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't leave. They were praying. They were fellowshipping. They were searching the Scriptures. They were seeking for the will of God. And part of that included choosing Matthias to take the place of Judas, rounding out the twelve, filling the gap left by Judas's defection, setting the stage, really. Everything was ready for the Spirit to come at this point. And they're waiting on God's timetable for the giving of the Spirit, which happens in Acts chapter 2. Now, we're going to start with some review, uh, a lot of review, actually, from last week. So if you weren't here last week, you'll, you'll like the fact that there's a lot of review, but if you want to get the whole thing, you've got to go online and, and, and listen to that. But last week, I talked about God's actions and the Spirit coming, and we saw the first four verses. We saw in that birth of the church, we saw the baptism of the Holy Spirit, verses 1 through 3, and the filling of the Spirit in verse 4. As far as we got, as God is ushering this new phase in of his plan of redemption for humanity, he is baptizing believers into the body of Christ, literally indwelling them permanently. So baptism of the Spirit is synonymous with being indwelt with the Spirit. And he is also filling them with ongoing power for service. So God's working every believer is to baptize them and to then fill them as he conforms them to the image of Christ. If you're a Christian today, you have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in your life. And you also have his ongoing filling with power for his glory. I want to talk about the baptism of the Spirit first. Again, we're reviewing here, okay? But the first three verses, you have this 
this sound, sudden, sudden sound like a mighty rushing wind, like a tornado going through your house like a locomotive, a sound, and then tongues of fire appearing to them and resting on each one of them. That's the baptism of the Spirit. And to be baptized in the Spirit literally means to be immersed in the Spirit, to be placed in the union with Christ and the body of Christ. And it happens at conversion. It's not something that might happen sometime after coming to faith if you've got enough faith or if you're spiritual enough. It is the God-ordained event that places you into the body of Christ. The Spirit immerses you into the church in union with Christ, places you into the common life of the community of God through the Spirit. So the baptism and the indwelling of the Spirit are the same. By the epistles, the church had come to a, a pretty clear understanding of the Holy Spirit's working. And you see in Ephesians chapter 1, in fact, you may want to go there, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1. The context is speaking to believers about how we have an inheritance. How we were predestined according to God's purposes, and that in Christ, pick it up at verse 13, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's the baptism of the Spirit. It says that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Spirit of God is given as a pledge, really like an engagement ring. If you're going to get engaged and you say, I'm going to give you this ring, I'm promising to marry you. So it's like an engagement ring, and it's the idea that God is going to fulfill the purpose for which he saved you. Romans chapter 8 speaks of God calling and sanctifying and glorifying those he's drawn to himself, and that we are being transformed and we're being conformed into the image of his Son. The whole point that God is, is angling towards in calling you into fellowship and being made in the image of his son is that you would, as Jude 24 and 25 says, stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. That you would be justified, sanctified, and glorified. That you come to faith in Christ and you receive justification of life God uh, regenerates you and you you get saved and then you have this process of sanctification of progressive sanctification where God is conforming you to Christ and then one day when you go to be with Jesus or he comes again whichever comes first you will be in a glorified state now a question gets raised regarding this. And it's a great question. It's a very fair question. The question is this. Is the baptism of the Spirit at conversion or at some other time after conversion? And the reason why the question gets asked 
is because the apostles believed in Jesus and then on the day of Pentecost were baptized in the Spirit. Now, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 8, you've got some Samaritans who come to know Jesus and they don't receive the Spirit. The apostles, John and Peter, are sent to them to lay hands on them that they would receive the Spirit of God and they, they are baptized in the Spirit. Why did that happen? They verify it and they report back. But then Acts chapter 10, Gentiles, Cornelius comes to faith in Christ and we read in verse 46 that, well, surely no one can re- refuse the water of baptism. So, proclaiming your faith in Christ, not the baptism of the Spirit, but the water of baptism to those who've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. So they're saying, hey, the the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. They've come to faith in Christ. Let's baptize them in water. And then you've got in Acts chapter 19 a group of Old Testament followers, really, uh, disciples of John the Baptist. And they're asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we don't know that there is a Holy Spirit. You could joke around, you know, with believers, they, you know, there are some believers who don't know there's a Holy Spirit. <laughs> Have you received the Holy Spirit? We don't know there is one. So right there, they believed in the Lord Jesus, were baptized in the Spirit, and then were baptized in water. So you've got these, these situations of Samaritans who, can you imagine if a church of Samaritans show up in Jerusalem and say, hey, we're with you? The Jews would be like, time out. They walk around Samaria. There's not, that's not in the program. We don't know if we're going to accept you. But no, they send Peter and John to verify and report back. Well, what was all this? Is it a pattern we are now to follow? The answer is no. It is a unique event in transitional history where Samaritans and Gentiles and Jews were all being folded into the same body, much like we are today. Much like we are today. The same church. And what was needed back then in this transitional, you know, birthing of the church was proof of everyone's inclusion. Now, I know a lot of distinctions get made today on color and on language and on economics and all sorts of things that we make distinctions. But the distinctions that were being made back then were were horrendous. All sorts of distinctions made back then, and they needed this to authenticate their experience of coming to faith in Christ as God opened people's hearts to the gospel. See, from then on, and really you see this in in the rest of the New Testament, from then on, everyone who comes to faith in Christ receives the Spirit at the point of conversion. Again, by the time the epistles were written, there was a fully developed understanding of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in salvation. So it's very clear biblically that the normative experience of a believer is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. And I'm going to show you that in several different ways here. I want, to, I want you to have a clear, solid understanding of spirit baptism. But before I get to that, let me just say, again, the apostles believed in Jesus while he was on earth and then were baptized in the Spirit after he ascended. It was very clear in the Gospels that the Spirit's coming was dependent on the Son's going. So their experience was not one to be repeated. Just realize their experience couldn't have been anything else than it was. 
transitional period necessitated it. So you're given new birth by God. You receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is a work of God where the Spirit of God places you into union with Christ and with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. Go to 1 Corinthians 12 and you'll see in 12 and 13 what Paul says about it. Paul says, We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, to experience, to, to, to live in. So here you've got everyone getting baptized by the spirit into one body. And I think to clarify a solid understanding of spirit baptism, first you need to see that this verse clearly states that all believers have been baptized into the spirit, all given the spirit to drink, the indwelling of the spirit. Second, Nowhere in Scripture are we told to be baptized with, in, or by the Spirit, or to seek the baptism of the Spirit, which indicates that all believers have had this experience already. I'll point you third to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul speaks to believers of having one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And he's talking about spirit baptism there. It's the reality for every believer, just as one Lord and one faith are. I'll give you another place, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Very clearly says, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you don't, believe the, you don't belong to Christ. You don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So there's no such thing as a non-Holy Spirit indwelt believer. One more place, 1 Corinthians 9 Paul says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place, spiritually, of the Holy Spirit. So to be baptized in the Spirit means you are indwelt in, you are immersed into union with Christ in His church, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a permanent state. A permanent state. It doesn't go away from you. It doesn't change it's not an experience subsequent to salvation not something you need to seek or ask for it happens to you that's the baptism of the spirit now verse 4 we see the filling of the spirit it says they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance the filling of the spirit is where god supplies ongoing power for service ongoing Blessing as you yield and obey. It comes by yielding and, and then you are being controlled by, powered by, moved by, yielded to the Spirit. Three commands in the New Testament regarding the Spirit of God. Two negative, one positive. Negatively, Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve or cause sorrow or distress to the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 do not quench or extinguish the Spirit. Positively, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. It's a command for us to be filled with the Spirit. That's part of sanctification. So you could say the baptism of the Spirit, that's regeneration. You could say filling of the Spirit is sanctification. Well, the, the Spirit baptized you into Christ Jesus upon conversion one-time event where you are positionally perfect in the righteousness of Christ. Until you're glorified, though, uh, the, the moment of, of conversion, really, there is a battle that begins 
Are you going to let the Holy Spirit fill you, or are you going to quench and grieve the Spirit in, in this time that we call progressive sanctification? And I found that it's, it's sometimes tough to understand the whole filling of the Spirit thing because we don't understand the ideas that are, that are, that are given in the New Testament at, at times. Uh, let me give you an example. If you understand Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, as the what, and Colossians 3.16 as the how, what you'll see is that these are parallel ideas that run together, that the what is Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Literally, be kept being filled with the Spirit. Let the presence of the Holy Spirit dominate your life. Yield to the Spirit. Surrender to the Spirit. The how, and I mentioned this last week, we're still in review, by the way, is Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be dominated by the Word of God. Yield to the will of God. Fill yourself with God's Word and see the Spirit go to work. Be doers of the Word, not merely hearers. How many times have you heard me say... That the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. God God uses His Word in our our lives to to transform us. I love what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He said, when you receive the Word of God, you receive it as for what it really is. The Word of God that does its work in you who believe. The Holy Spirit using the Word in the lives of believers. So the idea of filling is ongoing. It's ongoing. It's not... It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing, and it takes your yielded surrender to God, your obedience to the clear Word of God. It's a moment-by-moment choice that you make to walk in the Spirit, to obey God and experience joy in Christ, or walk in the flesh and reap the misery that sin brings. So, you've got the baptism, which initiates the indwelling of the Spirit, regeneration, justification. You've got the filling of the Spirit, which is sanctification. Occurs when you are walking in obedience, not quenching, not grieving the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore His promptings. Don't continue in unconfessed sin. Don't uh, discard the Word of God, but cling to the Word and yield to Him. Now, before we get into the next verses, I want to to say a word really to everyone, but if you hold a different position on spirit baptism and filling, what should you do? And really this is for everyone. Whatever position you hold regarding spirit baptism and filling, this is what you should do. Okay, so it's really for everyone. Because if you hold a different position, that means other people have other ideas, right? Okay, number one. It's very important. Make sure that what you believe about spirit baptism and spirit filling lines up with scripture and what scripture says don't base it on your experience don't base it on what friends think but on what you see in a careful faithful handling of the word of god the objective word of god first john 4 1 says test the spirits to see if they're of god so number one make sure what you believe lines up with scripture and a solid handling of scripture number two lovingly agree to disagree 
lovingly agree to disagree seek unity amidst diversity the things by the way we would die for are the basics of the faith the authority of scripture the deity of christ the blood atonement the bodily resurrection the return of christ those are the things we'd all line up and die for if we were told you know deny christ or die Okay, they're not going to say, hey, do you believe in tongues or not? Do you, do you think the gifts of tongues are still in operation today or not? Uh, you don't want to die for that. Okay? Um, Romans 14 is very clear for us that we are to determine, decide, not to judge brothers and sisters in Christ and not to cause them to stumble. So if you judge them or cause them to stumble, you're sinning, right? It even says in Romans 14, the conviction you have, Hold as your own conviction before God. To before God is who you're going you're to answer to. Okay? So here's the, the rule. Hold your convictions confidently. Don't be wishy-washy about them. Hold them confidently and share them humbly. Share them humbly. Acknowledge that sincere and intelligent Christians differ on secondary doctrines. So you agree to disagree lovingly and you walk out the door arm in arm to reach a world that is dying without Jesus and isn't asking about the gift of tongues. Okay, they don't care. Okay? What they care about is, do you really love Jesus and, and does the gospel really make a difference in your life and are you known as Jesus says you be known by your love one for another? Especially those that you do not agree with on secondary doctrine. Are we clear? Well, let's go to number three then. Uh, make sure what you believe lines up with Scripture. Lovingly agree, agree to disagree. And thirdly, realize that leadership in a local church needs to agree on our teaching positions. That doesn't mean that we can't personally disagree on secondary doctrines. It happens all the time. Especially when it's a confusing or controversial one. But to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, our elder board comes up with positions that we say, this is our teaching position at this church. We're not going to divide the, the body over this, this topic. Okay. By the way, this fall, we are planning a Grace Bible, Grace Bible Institute seminar where we're going to go into the topic of sign gifts in detail. One more point I want to make, and then we'll get into the actual text for today, okay? Number four, and I think this might be the most helpful thing I say to some of you that are wondering and, and worrying about, about the gifts, okay? Don't be anxious or feel less than other Christians. And on the on converse, don't feel more superior. But don't be anxious or feel less than other Christians if people expect you or you expect to have certain experiences that you haven't experienced. Don't be anxious about what the Spirit is going to do in your life. The Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. We're not. So don't be anxious about what you think the Holy Spirit should do. What you should do is seek to please God 2 Corinthians 5.14 And don't fear the disapproval of legalistic believers or licentious believers that want to control you. Seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what 
That's what God wants from us. A lot of times people think they need to have something more than the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So I want to say this clearly. If you think that you are deficient because you don't speak in tongues, then you need to be filled with the Spirit and seek the Word of God and His Spirit, let His Spirit illuminate the Word to your heart and pursue hearing His voice through His Word. What you need to do is be faithful to the Word of God. Be faithful to the Word. Submit to the Holy Spirit and whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. Basically, if I bottom line it, is love Jesus more than anything. Don't love your experience more than the objective Word of God. Your relationship with God is based on unchanging truth. Okay, we're done with the review. Now let's go into verse 5. Okay? Now, we've reviewed God's work in the Spirit's coming, verses 1 through 4. Now let's talk about people's reactions to God's work in the Spirit's coming. Verses 5 through 13. The effects of the Spirit's coming. Verse 5 tells us there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews who were devout, devout men from every nation under heaven. That means they were, devout means they were cautious about their spiritual life. They were fearful of offending God. They were fearful of blaspheming Him. They were reverent. Okay, so there were reverent people dwelling in Jerusalem and people from everywhere. The time of Pentecost, Jerusalem's population would swell into the hundreds of thousands of people. A lot of people, and Jews from all over, and many who weren't born Jews, they were proselytes. And, and there's bewilderment and amazement and astonishment going on because verse 6 tells us, at the sound. It sound like a mighty rushing wind, tornado blowing through your house like a locomotive. At that sound, the multitude came together. I can imagine. This was 9 in the morning. I remember years ago, I was sitting in my house on a Monday morning, just minding my own business, and all of a sudden, there's this huge blast, uh, uh, just a boom. And my son, Michael, and I, we ran into the backyard, we hopped the back fence, and we went running full speed down to the corner where there was a, an intersection, because that's where the sound came from. And we were, we were like, what is going on? What just happened? Turns out there had been a traffic accident and a van flew into the air and landed on its, on its head. And uh, praise God, the person that was driving was sitting on the curb when we got there. Like, wow, buy a Honda Odyssey. <laughs> um, I didn't get anything for that. But it's true. Anyway, um, at this sound, everyone hears the sound, and it's a singular. In the Greek, it's a singular sound. A sonic boom of sorts, and they are bewildered. They rush together to the house. They're saying, what's up? What is going on? This is confusing. Because, here's why, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Speaking foreign languages that they didn't previously know. So verse 7, they're amazed. They're literally beside themselves. And they're astonished. They're marveling. They're wondering. They're surprised. They're like, wow. And they're saying, this is key. They're saying, are not all these who are speaking 
Galileans. They recognize them as from Galilee. Maybe their accent, their clothing, their smell. I don't know what. But they're calling them Galileans, and that's a slam. We see from Matthew 26 and Mark 14, the disciples were called Galileans in a disparaging way. What they're saying is, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And they're keeping a straight face. They're saying, hold on. These backwards, uncivilized, untrained, uneducated, inferior people are speaking our language? How can this be? And they say in verse 8, how do we hear each one in his own native language? Now, it was so shocking that their response was to do a shout-out of intros to every group represented. Here's this mixed bag of people from literally everywhere. They're, this is an international, you know, gathering of people. And this is like, it's like the, the parade of nations at the opening ceremonies at the Olympics or something. They're like calling them all off. They're doing it. It's like, well, hey, we're experts at, you know, at knowing where we're from. So we're going we're gonna to say where we're from here. And here's this sampling of the worldwide witness to come. This is Acts 1-8 in miniature. Listing of nations running east to west. Verse 9, Parthians. That's Iran. Medes, Elamites, that's Babylon. We're talking Iran and Iraq here. Residents of Mesopotamia, which means the, Mesopotamia is the joining of two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's, it's where the Garden of Eden was. We're talking Iraq here. Judea, Cappadocia, Asia Minor, East Asia Minor, Pontus in Asia, um, Turkey. Verse 10, Phrygia, that's to the west, Pamphylia. Well, we're talking a little strip of the coast. 50 miles by 25 miles and then you cross the Mediterranean into Egypt and then parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene that's Africa we're all over the map here all over the globe you cross the Mediterranean again you're back in Rome visitors from Rome Jews in Rome for many years synagogues in Rome the, the Jews were really really active in proselytizing in Rome about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. Verse 11, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, all these people hearing the truth. Here's what they say. They're saying it. Okay, they're receiving this. Here's what they're saying. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God by their own admission. They know. They are hearing about the attributes of God, the mighty works of God, rolling probably from creation all the way to the cross. Gospel truth from the mouths of unlearned men who did not know these languages and didn't know the ones they were actually speaking. Why is this so big? Why would this be so shocking? Well, first, if you were a proselyte to Judaism, you would have never heard God praised in a Gentile language. Everything spoken in the synagogue was in Hebrew or Aramaic, and they believe Hebrew was God's language. But they are hearing God's wonderful works in their Gentile languages. From creation onward, told by Galileans 
in Gentile languages, that's shocking. They had never expressed the Old Testament in any language other than the one that was originally given, and they're hearing it in their own. And so, yes, there was great uh, perplexity. They're, they're basically speechless. That's what it means. You're speechless. You're blown away. You're at a loss. Can't at a loss for words. They were amazed, again. Con- that means they were continuously, continually astonished, astounded. So they say to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? They're blown away. They're wondering what's going on. And Peter will soon enough explain it all in very great detail. I can't wait to get to verse 14 on, April, on uh, August 9th when we return. But we're going to wait for now. And, and, and I just want us to settle in in, in this passage and, and ask a few questions. First, what's the point of God giving someone ability to speak an unlearned language? What's the point? We know what the point is. And we know it from 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians is interesting. Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, is correcting the Corinthians over and over again. Yeah, you did that wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong. And he gets to 14, he says, yeah, and you're messing up tongues too. And he clears it up. He says, God uses tongues as a sign to unbelievers. These known languages, a sign, a divine purpose, to say something to unbelievers. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 14. Brethren, first of all, don't be children in your thinking. Kids, we love you. Don't be children in your thinking. Don't be immature. Be, but in, in evil, be infants. It's like a, a young child or a baby who's not trying to hurt anybody. But then he says, in your thinking, be mature. And he's going to show them what's a mature thinking as relates to tongues. He says, in the law, it's written. Now, he's going to quote Isaiah 28, which is a very dramatic and vivid prophecy against Israel in judgment on their sin. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, Israel, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And then Paul says, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, so then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. They're a sign of judgment on Israel the church is being established to take the place of unfaithful Israel. Your tongues are God giving you the ability to speak an unlearned language to someone who needs to hear the gospel. Verse 12, the response is so amazing. There's five different kinds of amazing going on here. And here's the miracle of Pentecost, right there. God enabled the apostles to speak foreign languages they didn't know to declare his mighty deeds, his attributes, his works, gospel truth. And the hearers would have known it was judgment. The hearers would have known. So there's this commotion going on. Boom, loud sound, and a crowd gathers, and everybody in the known world is represented, and the content of the words that they hear in their own languages is gospel truth, and they basically come to a conclusion. There's a reception, there's a receptivity there, there's what is going on. It's like we want to know what is going on. But some in that crowd were so bankrupt, just look at verse 13. Some weren't buying it. Others mocking said, 
They're filled with new wine. By the way, that, that's ridiculous ridicule. They're saying you're drunk on new wine. They're mocking them. They're jeering. They're sneering. They're scoffing. They're dismissing. They're saying no way. And, and they, they bring out an ignorant absurdity from those those who don't understand the language is being spoken bring out an ignorant absurdity they say they're filled with new wine literally what they're saying is they can't handle their grape juice the greek word is glucose it's where we get our word glucose they're like they're drinking sugar water and they can't handle it they're getting drunk they're getting all messed up on mountain dew new wine sweet wine unfermented grape juice literally glucose their babies lightweight weaklings they can't handle their grape juice i'm reminded of nehemiah god's people are rebuilding the wall of jerusalem and they've got enemies and sanballat and tobiah these officials are mocking the jews and here's what they tell them if a fox jumped into their wall it would break down a little lightweight fox could break down they're not very good brick masons but here they say they can't handle what everyone can handle they're putting them down in the in in whatever way they could and i I agree it makes no sense because they didn't make sense they're scorning them they didn't understand so they mocked if you think that's bad the treachery just increased chapter four you see them questioning and threatening the apostles chapter 5 you see them putting them in prison and beating them up and in chapter 7 you see them killing them the treachery just gets worse but go back to verse 12 as we close up let's go back to verse 12 many people were asking what does this mean they're open to the message they're open to hearing of the mighty deeds of god think about it that day over three thousand people came to faith in christ and peter stood up and preached the gospel explained the phenomena that happened he said this is joel chapter two god opened people's hearts and minds to the gospel and they repented and were saved three thousand over three thousand so first they hear in their own languages the mighty deeds of God and then they would hear the gospel in one common language when Peter stands up and preaches the effects of Pentecost are staggering what I love about the apostles is they understood the, New, the Old Testament after Jesus rose from the dead Luke 24 he's opening their minds to the scriptures he's saying hey see, see here, 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 here it's all about me he's pointing out in the Old Testament all the things about himself for 40 days some 40 days jesus taught them the word of god and how the old testament speaks of him and what do you see starting in verse 14 you see post pentecost peter preaching the gospel filled with the holy spirit preaching the word and 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 wielding the the old testament taking joel 2 and psalm 16 and psalm 110 and showing how it talks about jesus but we're not there yet because i want you to think just about what we've seen so far in these first 13 verses in acts chapter 2 there's something here about god working in his people what happens when you're filled with the spirit 
what God does in and through those whose hearts are yielded to him. In conclusion, I just want to give you um, four key outcomes of being filled with the Spirit of God. From this text, if you're yielded and controlled and empowered by the Spirit, here's what will be true in your life. Number one, if you're filled with the Spirit, nothing in you hinders the work of God. If you're filled with the Spirit, nothing in you hinders the work of God. This is what was true about the apostles. They were prepared. They had, were in the Word. They were praying. They were fellowship, and They were seeking God's will. They were obeying. So you can't please God unless you're indwelt by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Anything you do controlled by the flesh isn't going to please God. But the apostles were prepared... They were walking in the Spirit. Their hearts were clean. They were clear. They were uncluttered by sin. They were prepared. And, and God used them. They, they didn't hinder the work. One time I was fishing at Irvine Lake with my son Michael, and we had this 10-foot aluminum boat that we were out there fishing in, and we had this, it had an old gas um, outboard motor, and it had an electric trolling motor, and we weren't really familiar with this boat, and we grabbed some gas and took it, and um, we took a deep-cycle marine battery, and we got way out in the middle of the lake, far side of the lake, and uh, the outboard stopped working. And we didn't know how to use this. So I said, well, I got, the, I got the, uh, the trolling motor. We'll use that. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't charged up the trolling motor battery, the deep-cycle battery. So we had to row back the whole way. And, and really, our, our lack of prep sunk us. It really didn't sink us. Actually, uh, we got back fine. We didn't go in, in the water. Uh, it, it ruined us, okay? Here's the deal. You, you need to be prepared so that you don't hinder God's work. If you want assurance that, that, that you're controlled by the Spirit, then prepare by dwelling in the Word of God. He fills you and He changes you as you dwell in the Word of God. You go away from the Word of God, you've lost your anchor. Okay, so if you're filled with the Spirit, nothing in you will hinder God's work. Number two, if you're filled with the Spirit, you will wholeheartedly engage in God's work. This is what the apostles did. Now, God was speaking the languages through them, but here is what he did. He used their whole being and used their vocal cords and their eyes and their ears and their voices, and they spoke the, the mighty deeds of God. And can you imagine the surprise sudden onslaught of Holy Spirit power sovereign declaration you know what God was declaring there he says I'm, I'm going to start collecting the elect the elect chosen before the foundation of the world by the lamb slain before time began had begun and from then on Christ's spirit empowered witnesses begin to speak the word of God with boldness that's what we need to do start in your own heart start in your own home Start with your neighbors and the community and where you work, where you go to school, who you hang out with. Because people want to see, people want to see a life changed by the gospel. They want to see that on display. They want to see it and hear it and, and realize. Because everybody's looking for hope in life. So you tell the mighty deeds of God in your own language. And don't pull out the rug from underneath that telling by living in a way that doesn't, doesn't fit with it. I think it's significant that they didn't talk about the phenomena surrounding the Spirit's coming. They talked about the Savior who sent the Spirit. They didn't get themselves in a debate. 
They spoke the truth strongly. You can be assured, if your heart is wholeheartedly engaged in God's work, that God will always act according to His word. So you should be open to whatever God wants to do because what He does is always in accordance with His word. Number three, got two quick ones and then the worship team will come up. If you're filled with the Spirit, people recognize and respond to God's work. People will recognize it, they'll see it, and they'll respond. When they see the life of a person in line with the gospel, they will respond. And do not think that it's all going to be good. They will respond in blessing or cursing, five kinds of amazement, or truth-rejecting mockery and scorn. And I think it's precisely at this point that we all need to stop and say, wait a minute, let's not think about somebody else's heart. Let's think about where our hearts are at with God. I need to examine my own heart on this. You need to examine your own heart on this. Because your heart response to God's mighty deeds is going to either be amazement and wonder and declaration of His majesty, or it's going to be rejection and scorn. Jesus died so that you might live. It is true that if you're not a believer, you don't have the Spirit of God. And, and you need you need. Jesus he shed his blood on the cross he he died he rose again he's coming again you need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved if you're not a Christian that's what you need right now but if you're a professing believer then that means you're indwelt with the spirit of God but it also means that you can reject the word of God in your life and we all know we've done it and we all know people that are doing it but let's think about ourselves and think that if I'm safe and secure in Christ, and if I'm enveloped by his mercy and grace, and he has shed his blood for me, then I want to be like the apostles and be prepared and, and wholeheartedly engaged and realize that my response matters. My response to the gospel matters. And it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, rich or poor, your language, your country of origin, or any of that, God wants your heart. We see it very clearly in the book of Acts. He is the knower of hearts. He is the changer of hearts. He is the filler of hearts. So I ask you today, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? And if so, is your heart open to what God wants to do in his church? And is your focus fixed on Jesus and the gospel? And has, has that gospel trickled down into the crevices of your life? where it really matters. You've come in here today with all sorts of things on your mind and all sorts of things going on in your life. And this matters. If you're a Christian, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God wants to use you for God's sovereign purposes as you yield, as you surrender. And it will make a difference on all the issues that you are stressed out over and dealing with and burdened by and wondering about the reason why and the worship team is going to come up but the reason why is this last idea when you are filled with the spirit of God God is glorified God is glorified every time the gospel is rehearsed in your life every time the gospel comes past your lips every time in your heart in your home in your neighborhood in the workplace or wherever God puts you he is honored by that and he wants your heart and my heart to be so captured by the mercy and the grace and the love of God in Christ that all we do is say, you know what? I want, I want to be used 
get this the ends of the earth came to Jerusalem that day it's a microcosm of Acts 1-8 but it's a foreshadowing of Revelation 5-9 they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that's the gospel to every nation happened then it's continuing now until Jesus returns I want you to think about this the cross the cross of Christ canceled Babel's curse bringing people from all nations into fellowship with God and one another in the church and Pentecost was the first fruits of that people are asking people from all nations are asking today what do these things mean show them Show them with your words and with your life who Jesus is. Lord God, thank you that the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. And thank you that you poured out what was seen and heard on the day of Pentecost. I pray, Lord, that as you continue to pour out what people see and hear, that we would go forth with humble confidence not arrogant smugness but humble confidence knowing we are firmly held by you knowing that we must faithfully hold to scripture and that we would fall at Jesus feet in worship surrendering everything trusting in you and resting in Christ in everyday life we thank you in Christ's name